0: To the extent that is the American Bar Association Business Law Section's podcast series. Our podcasts provide general information. They aren't a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at ababusinesslaw at AmericanBar.org.
1: We hope you enjoy your selection.
2: Welcome to the second episode of the Business Divorce Podcast. We are never, ever, ever getting back together, a business divorce case study. And now I'd like to introduce you to the cast and crew of this production. I'm Richard Leach, and I serve as an Associate Justice on the Rhode Island Superior Court. I frequently handle business divorce matters, and I'll be chiming in from time to time with a view from the bench. Our first cast member is Attorney One, Thank you, Judge Leach.
3: My name is John C. Shakota. I'm a member at Ehrenberg-Goldgen in Chicago, uh, where I concentrate on business divorce and ownership dispute matters, as well as commercial litigation. I'm also proudly uh, the co-founder of the Chicago Bar Association's Business Divorce and Complex Ownership Disputes Committee, and a current chair of that committee. And you have a client named Parker Pete. I do, a great client.
1: <laughs> Thank you, Judge. This is Byung Sook I had the pleasure of playing Parker Pete. I also have the pleasure of being the sole member of this cast that's west of the Mississippi. I practice law with the, with the firm of Snell Wilmer in Denver, Colorado, and I have an emphasis in business divorce as a litigation attorney. Again, I'm looking forward to participating. Thank you.
4: Attorney 2, will you introduce yourself? Hello, everyone. My name is Odara Nawazi. As mentioned, I'll be playing Attorney 2. I'm a partner with Fakery Drinker Biddle & Reith in Wilmington, Delaware, in Philadelphia. My primary focus is in corporate governance, M&A litigation, as well as negotiating and litigating business divorce issues. Thanks for having me. And your client is Stacy Gwynn.
0: Hi, Judge Leach. This is Melissa Donomirsky. I'm an attorney at uh, Heyman, Enario, Gattuso, and Herzl in Wilmington, Delaware, where I focus on corporate uh, and commercial litigation, most especially in the Delaware Court of Chancery, and I, I specialize in business divorce and ownership disputes. I'm also the chair, uh, I'm sorry, co-chair of the Business Divorce Subcommittee of the uh, business litigation section of the ABA, and I'm so happy to be here.
2: Previously, we met with the first partner of a business potentially looking at a divorce. That was Parker Pete. In this episode, we will meet the other partner, Stacy Gwen. We now move to the office of Attorney Two, who is on the phone, involved in a lively debate regarding whether the Heisman Trophy. Should have been awarded for the 2020 season due to each football conference determining their own schedules and rules of operations for the pandemic. Tourney 2's assistant barges in with Stacy Gwen,
4: Mary Ben's CEO in tow. Hi, Ms. Gwen. Welcome to our firm. How can we help you? Please
0: just call me Stacy. I need some help dealing with an out-of-control investor, Parker Pete. I think he's preparing to undermine my authority, and I don't know what else he's going to do, but I think something crazy.
4: You tell me what's causing your concern?
0: Uh, Let me try to provide some background. I'm the CEO of Mayben LLC. I run the company, everything from developing intellectual property to manufacturing and sales. My business partner, Parker, is an old friend. He lost his parents when he was young, and he was raised by his aunt and uncle. And his parents left him a significant inheritance. So as a result, he hasn't had to work a day in his life. He basically has two hobbies, throwing his inheritance away in failed startups and photography. But the one investment that's actually working is Mayben, and that's because of me.
4: Okay. So what's the problem?
0: Well, he has a 70% membership interest in Mayben. I own the other 30. And even though I'm the CEO and I'm the one who runs the company, he keeps making decisions about our company and rejecting my suggestions and desires, even though I'm the one who's been making the company successful. So originally, I developed the web shooter it shoots this strong, light, adhesive fluid great distances, and it lets the user shape the fluid in any manner. It's great for triage situations. So, for example, if an EMT needs to ca- needs a cast for a broken limb, you can make one on site before loading the patient into the ambulance. Or if an Army medic needs shelter to perform an emergency procedure to stabilize a soldier, he can make an impromptu shelter on the battlefield.
4: Wow, that sounds great. Are you currently selling that web shooter?
0: Barely. Basically, Parker ordered me to divert development, marketing, manufacturing, and sales funds away from the web shooter. Instead, he had me develop a flame retardant suit for the vigilante market, and that suit is called the Phoenix. So the Phoenix is selling well. And meanwhile, my my web shooter is languishing because vigilantes aren't interested in it. That market isn't concerned about triage or the training needed to take advantage of the web shooter. So I asked him to increase his investment to allow me to market and sell the web shooter, but he has no interest in Maybelline working on any other product until he receives distributions in an amount equal to his original investment. Basically, he's now demanded that I drop the web shooter entirely from our product line.
4: Wow, that sounds short-sighted. How did you respond?
0: I didn't really have a choice, so I did my best to develop and sell the Phoenix. I busted my tail. I have not taken a day off for the last three years, and I have focused every single one of those days on making Phoenix, the Phoenix, and Mayben a success, and it worked. Mayben is profitable.
4: Congratulations. That's good to hear. But there must be something that caused you to meet with me. So what is it?
0: When you work as hard as I do, you want to have a passion for what you're doing. And for me, that's the web shooter. It's not like the Phoenix, which is designed to be used by a bunch of vigilantes trying to find relevance by beating up suspected criminals. The web shooter is meant to help those who have been harmed and need immediate assistance. It's designed to save lives, not incarcerate people. So I told Parker that I'm struggling with my hours and I wanted to talk. And when we met, I asked him to increase our budget so I can hire staff. So I don't have to work nonstop the way I have been for the last three years. And that way I can put some of my time toward working on the web shooter. And he basically said no. And to stop asking about the web shooter. He was really annoyed with me and said if i'm so interested in the web shooter you can develop it and sell it on your own time and money so i said fine i will i also asked if i could get compensated for the time i'm working given that i'm the one who runs the company on a day-to-day basis and i'm doing an amazing job i mean there wouldn't be a successful company if it wasn't for me and i believe that i not only justified my salary but based on comparable ceos I'm woefully underpaid in salary and ownership interest. Plus, the company has never even made a distribution to me, even though it's doing great. So guess what he said?
4: I'm guessing he said no.
0: Right. Uh, Yeah. He said no distributions to me. He refuses to acknowledge my value. So I started another company, the Sinister Six Inc., to develop and sell the web shooter. If I'm not appreciated, I'm going to take my success and my know-how and go somewhere else.
4: Let me guess. He's not happy about this.
0: He hasn't said anything, but his behavior has definitely changed. He's constantly asking about financials and not just summary information, but basically things like daily book entries for all payables and receivables. He wants receipts for every single little thing. Last week, he got mad that I couldn't find the receipt for pencils that I ordered from Staples. I even had to provide a weekly itemization of the salary he receives, which is ridiculous because he gets that detail on his pay stubs, and he shouldn't even be receiving a salary because he doesn't do anything. (sighs) I'm just, I'm so frustrated. I stopped responding to him other than to say that I'll provide the requested information on a quarterly basis. And honestly, that should be sufficient. I I don't have time for this crap.
4: Well, you know, Parker may have a right to certain financial information. What does your operating agreement say about it? Nothing. Do you have an employment contract with Parker?
0: Uh... We have an agreement, but it's not written. We've always managed the business on an informal basis. But let me tell you, he has always promised to make this venture worth my while in terms of salary, in terms of distributions, and in terms of membership interest. And basically, he's never made good on his promise. You have to understand, Peter used to have no interest in Mayben, other than to take photographs of vigilantes using the Phoenix while assaulting suspected criminals.
4: Wow, I see why you wanted to consult an attorney. Before we talk about potential strategies, what's your goal?
0: I am really angry with Parker. I've known him forever. I care about his well-being, but frankly, he's a jerk. I'm just done with this. I want to protect myself and find a way to go our separate ways. I think that Parker is going to be irrational. He's basically always lived in the shadow of his parents, who are extremely successful business people, and May Ben is his first success.
2: Well, let's again hear from our intrepid group of attorneys to obtain their reaction to Ms. Gwen's meeting with Attorney One. Assuming that Mayben stock LLC agreement clearly defines Stacy's role as CEO, what recourse might be available to her prior to terminating or separate from, separating from uh, Mayben? How does she respond to Parker's habit of making decisions while we're just rejecting her
4: suggestions and desires? Well, one thing that comes to mind, this is O'Darren and Owasi, is that she may be able to file a derivative suit for breach of the llc agreement to the extent that it's her view that his usurping of her role as a ceo has caused harm to the company while the company has increased in profits six percent to the extent that his explicit decision making and she can identify the circumstances in which this happened caused losses to the company or capped the company at 6% when it could have grown 12%, I think she may have a legitimate recourse uh, to file, suit, file a derivative suit against him for his conduct and for the benefit of the company.
3: This is John, by the way. This just seems to me to be a situation where if the company has corporate counsel, obviously attorney one and attorney two represent them individually. But if the... Company has a really good company's counsel that this might be an opportunity for her or him to intervene here and to try to see if there's a way to make Parker understand that if in fact the agreements allow Gwen to be the operating manager of the company that he's has to back off unless she's doing something inappropriate or, you know, at the manager level, you know, they can take, you know, uh, requisite steps. So when I I read this and listened to it, that was my first impression. Can there be an intervention?
2: My experience is that there is no corporate attorney or the attorney that may have represented the corporation tends to side with one shareholder, or or in this case, member, uh, versus the other. But you're absolutely correct, John. If there is a true corporate attorney who's looking out for the corporation, there is the potential for that type of intervention. But frequently, I, I find that there isn't. And we talked about a derivative suit. But you have to be very careful and understand what the state law is on derivative suit, suit, both as far as a court rule and case law. So, for example, in Rhode Island, and I can't speak for any place else, uh, notwithstanding that you're supposed to make a formal demand, you wait for the response. There's a rule, one of our rules of civil procedure, deal with it. We have by court decision dispensed with all of those requirements if it's a closely held corporation and it would be futile because if Stacy Gwen as a 30% minority owner makes a uh, demand that the corporation take certain action against Parker Pete, uh, it's not going to happen. So we bypass those steps in a closely held corporation. That may or may not be the case in other jurisdictions, and therefore you have to make sure if you're going to bring a derivative action that you follow the technical rules of that jurisdiction.
3: Judge, uh, this is John. In Illinois, there's a recent case coming out of Chicago. It's called Tufo versus Tufo, which deals with derivative actions under Illinois law. And there's an eight-step There's eight requirements before someone can bring a derivative action. And one of them is, is the person asserting it? Are they qualified to assert it? And in this particular case, because of the animosity that was involved, and there was a lot of other issues, the court ruled that this particular shareholder was not, did not have the proper standing to bring a derivative action. So as you indicate, you have to really look at state law for the guiding principles of whether or not the person that brings the derivative suit has the requisite standing to bring the suit in the first place. Very interesting case.
1: As the uh, sole member that's here in Colorado, uh, there's a body of law in Colorado That is explicitly trying to develop a distinction between corporate doctrines and what can be applied and incorporated against LLCs. Specifically, under the Colorado LLC Act, they address uh, there's a statute that says you can apply the piercing the corporate veil theories against LLCs. And that was the only time in which. The LLC Act addresses a doctrine usually applied against corporations. Thus, in other cases, especially dealing with improper distributions and third party standing, uh, to assert such a claim, which you could assert under corporate doctrines, recent case law has made a distinction saying it's obvious that the LLC Act is, is designed to be different from the corporate act, and such we cannot apply all corporate doctrines per se against LLCs and so they made a distinction and focused on how if this one statute identifies a single corporate theory like the corporate veil but didn't apply others we as a judicial uh judicial duty have to also assess whether it should be applied what other doctrines should be applied. And in that case, it did not give standing to a third party for improper distributions. So there's a strong argument for what Judge Leach, what you're saying and what John says is to look at the state laws because the derivative, statute, derivative laws of statute on the LLC Act in Colorado does have minor distinctions between that of the corporate derivative standing statutes as well as rules.
2: And I think you bring up an excellent point that I find a number of practitioners don't recognize that there's a difference between LLCs and corporations. There are two different statutes and they operate under that, which brings me to the issue of the financial disclosures. What really is Stacey Gwen's obligation to Parker Pete? Whether the other member be a 70% holder or a a minority holder, what are the obligations to provide members with financial information?
0: Uh, Judge, I just wanted to jump in uh, very quickly, going back to the discussion of derivative actions very quickly. I just wanted to note that in Delaware, you know, we do have a demand obligation for derivative suits, but you have to be very careful with them because if you, you make a demand on the board, you can see that the board is disinterested and is able to make an independent and objective decision on that demand. So as a result, you know, you usually want to plead that the demand is excused and that's just a very good reason to hire an attorney that's familiar with these sorts of, of things. Uh, with respect to financial information, there is a right under Delaware law for a member of an LLC to receive financial information. The question of whether or not it has to be as fulsome as Parker is demanding is is another question entirely.
2: Yeah, this comes up in my courtroom all the time, is a request for financial information. We have a statute in Rhode Island that says if you fail to provide it to any owner, you could be subject to a penalty of 10% of the value of their interest in the company, which is rather substantial. But what has not been developed is what amount of financial information is necessary to provide? Do you have to give the general ledger? Do you, to, do you have to give bank statements? Do you have to provide every single financial detail or is summary information enough? Stacey Gwen is suggesting that she only has to give quarterly statements to Parker Pete. Is that enough?
3: Judge, this is John. In Illinois, there's that is an issue. How much do you have to provide? but before we even get there under Illinois, and it's in our statute that a books and records inspection request must be must be included with it is a proper purpose, and there is a an abundance of case law in Illinois which talks about what is and what is not a proper purpose and that's a big issue. Now, obviously, you have a 70% owner here. I think the proper purpose threshold is not going to be as as severe. But in many of these cases, especially when you have minority interest holders making requests, we've defeated books and records inspections at the proper purpose level and have initiated litigation and, and have been successful with it. So that's an issue that our listeners should be aware of. But the other point that you make, Judge Bleach, is a good one. What is the responsibility and what do you have to provide and what is sufficient and insufficient? And I think every state deals with that maybe a little bit differently. I know that I read lots of cases from Delaware under Section 220 about inspection requests, but uh, it's a very interesting issue. Yeah, I
0: mean we have the same the same requirement here of a proper purpose and the two that are most commonly used are valuing one's interest in the entity and investigating wrongdoing potential wrongdoing. Now in this case well it sounds like he he may have a basis for investigating wrongdoing in terms of her starting a competing business and there becomes a question of whether or not she's using may Ben's assets for that that alternate business and then alternately as i said uh, valuing his his membership interest but it, it doesn't necessarily get so granular that you get every receipt for every set of pencils that's purchased sometimes maybe but not always
4: yeah it's important to recognize too when you talk about granular financial data these are supposed to be corporate And if we're going to use uh, 220 speak, corporate board level information. So, getting granular financial data, as Melissa put it, about every set of pencils purchased would not necessarily be information given to the board. But focusing on, on an LLC, it's clear that the LLC Act in Delaware governs what kinds of materials may be received once a demand is made. But what's important to also note is that. There's case law in Delaware that says the LLC agreement itself can narrow, amend or bridge some of those interests. So here, I I know we've been talking a lot about the fact that they used an LLC agreement fresh from the Internet. So it likely doesn't. But some of our listeners may be in circumstances where the LLC agreement uh, clearly defines what types of materials members are entitled to when they can request them and the mechanisms for obtaining them.
2: But well, we have two uh, Delaware uh, attorneys uh, <clears throat> on our panel here. And what's interesting in Rhode Island, I don't know if it exists anywhere else. Our Supreme Court has blessed our looking at Delaware law when they haven't spoken on an issue. So that we uh, we have a business calendar, so myself and we have two other business uh, calendar judges, we will frequently look to Delaware law. If uh, Rhode Island has or the Rhode Island Supreme Court has never spoken on an issue, we're not bound by it, but we look to it for guidance, uh, just as we do when we interpret the our civil rules of procedure, we frequently uh, look to the f- federal interpretation. So so it's helpful to listen to those Delawareans. Is that the right term? <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> and actually. uh Delaware is the second smallest state. We in Rhode Island uh, pride ourselves in being the smallest, but I guess uh, we've never had a president, and you have one now. So uh, I guess uh, Delaware certainly deserves uh, special attention. Let's uh, let me ask a different question: What is Attorney Two's obligation to Stacy to explain that she may have done something wrong in creating? Sinister Six. Does he have an obligation to pursue that a line of questioning to ask her more about it? How did it come about? Who developed the web shooter? How was it developed? Who's what resources were? Isn't this the obligation of the attorney as well?
0: Well, definitely, especially if he's going to defend her. According to Miss Gwen, she had a conversation uh, with. Pete Parker, in which he blessed her competition. And so the question is, is that sufficient? Is it sufficiently detailed such that that can be an oral agreement to override the requirement or fiduciary duties that she has not to improperly compete with, with the company or misappropriate business opportunities?
2: When we're talking about a conversation that two principals in a business have, uh, we as judges frequently find out that there are two different versions of the conversation. Probably both will admit there was a conversation, but it'll be a third party who's going to determine really what happened in that conversation and who's more credible or whose memory is better. So it's important to explore, at least in my view, this whole development issue of the web shooter.
1: I, and I think that's a great point, Judge. And I think for the first episode, we know that Parker Pete has a different impression about what's going on here. But when you pose the question of what are some of the, the traditional remedies strategies that could be pursued, given how this played out, given what Basic uh informed attorney two of, I think this may be one of the scenarios in which the advice should be to consider not to take any explicit judicial actions and to prepare essentially for what I would call a a response if Parker P takes any actions, because I think there are great fact patterns here that you could use in defense of any claim uh, that she is either misappropriating corporate uh, business opportunity and or breaching other fiduciary duties. And can we say that Asking for detail on a pay stub is just not justified, period.
2: <laughs> yeah. I think that's uh, true. And what you bought the uh, employees for lunch is probably just as irrelevant.
0: Well, you know, it's it's interesting. Uh, I've been involved in two cases where very granular financial data did become an issue in the case. In in the first instance, we had a CEO who charged her morning coffee and daily lunch every day to the company credit card. And over time, you know, it adds up. And and then we had a a separate case where the CEO was accused of doing something similar and uh, the plaintiff asserted it as a, a waste claim. So there were, there was combing through, Bank statements and credit card statements for several years, putting together whether or not there were inappropriate charges that were were made to the company. And I remember in particular that there was an issue over a $5,000 purchase for gummy bears for the employees of the company. And this became a huge issue in the case. It it was the, the gummy bear case. The court actually ruled on the gummy bears.
2: Well, that's a good note to end on. And we'll have to leave everyone in in suspense because we've come to the end of this episode, which I hope you've enjoyed. Tune in to the next episode of We Are Never, Ever, Ever Getting Back Together, a business divorce case study where Parker Pete implements extraditional remedies to address his perceived concerns with Stacey Gwen. What will the often trust fund investor do? Will he lock out Stacey Gwen, literally and figuratively? And how will our brilliant overworked CEO respond? Will she follow her heart at the sake of harming her business partner? Tune in next to find out. Ladies and gentlemen, until then, stay healthy and safe. And on behalf of our panel,